few weeks ago, I was walking my daughter, Julianne, to school, and as we approached the school, she asked me, Daddy, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> and my daughter is seven, mind you, and that's typically what I hear from other adults, like my wife, for example, who might have good news and bad news. Normally, I choose the bad news first in that situation. But she says, Daddy, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? And I recognize at this point that generally a seven-year-old's bad news is not going to rock my world too much. So, so I said, Julie, you know, hey, let's, let's hear the bad news first. Well, fortunately, as it, as it turned out, the bad news just was a friendly reminder that she wouldn't be able to participate in the school play this year. You know, we had a, actually used that example in a, a sermon earlier this year, but then a family thing came up and she's not going to be able to participate. So I said, yeah, babe, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. That's a bummer, isn't it? Yeah. The good news, though, as it turned out, was that it was her teacher's birthday that day. And so she was all excited about that. My daughter Julie loves birthdays. She loves her birthday. She probably loves your birthday. Any, any birthday, any reason for celebration is great news. So that was the good, that was the bad that morning. When our lives, doesn't it often feel like a constant pull between the good news and the bad news? We're often tossed between the two and I want to use that sort of that framework as we look at Revelation this morning. As we look at this morning's text, we're confronted with, with good news. We're confronted with some hard news regarding the end of the age when Christ is going to come again. But by God's grace, he's, he's given us this word so that we might not be surprised by this bad news. That this bad news just doesn't have to happen to us. And then we react to it afterwards. No, God has offered us his word. He has extended us his grace that we might be prepared for this day when Jesus comes again. And so here it is for us in our text this morning. And as you know, as we've been working through the book of Revelation over the last several weeks, we've seen all kinds of different realities described in vivid images and pictures and signs. And we've seen just various things that are true about this age in which we live. Last week we looked at this beast, this false trinity. You might remember this, the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth, and how these are forces that have come against God's people and his church through time. But, but we also see, and we're meant to see, this, this assurance of our being sealed and preserved by God, that your faith, that he holds your faith, and he will seal and preserve you through the trials and the tribulations which may come your way. We've also seen this, this tension between how, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, both advances and at the same time forces come against. Forces come against the church. But in our text for this morning, I want to say to you that the, the return of Jesus, that, that, that all of us, that all of history is moving towards is perhaps more imminent. It's more apparent than it has been to this point. And we learn something of what happens on that day. 
And so this morning in our text, there's, I think, two things that you can bank on. Two things that you can bank on as we think about the end of all things. One has to do more with this, this bad news, if you will. It's the righteous judgment of God against unredeemed humanity. That, that there is a reckoning come, coming for all of us. And unredeemed humanity, we're talking about those who have not trusted Christ, those who have rejected Christ, those who are allied with this beast that we've heard described. But the good news for the people of God, for those who follow the Lamb, trust the Lamb, is the redemption and the victory of God's people. The redemption and the victory of God's people. So two things to bank on as we think about the end. And so our text is a reminder that this bad news is, 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 is weighty, it's, it's heavy, but it's real. And the good news is greater than we can even imagine. So before we turn to this word, let us pray to prepare our hearts. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you for this journey through what's often a challenging book, but Lord, we trust that it's, it's windows into reality meant to encourage our faith. And so God, may you encourage your people this day. Lord, would you help us to open our hearts to receive from you by your spirit this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 14, and we, we looked at the first part of chapter 14 last week, and we see as, as chapter 14 moves along a series of angels. And there is a series of angels with different announcements. One has the, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that this angel brings to every tribe and tongue and language and people. Another angel has, has warnings, has warnings against those who have the mark of the beast about a wrath that is coming. But after this series of angelic announcements, we have another figure. We encounter another figure in verse 14. John says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Based on images from the book of Daniel, Daniel in the Old Testament, and we've, we've referred there a number of times to Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 7, we see one like a son of man. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus describes his own coming, his own return in similar language, similar images. And so this one like a son of man on this cloud is most certainly Jesus Christ himself. And he has a crown on his head, and so the crown is his victory, it's his authority. But what else does he have? He has a sickle. A sickle, you know, we don't, in our culture, unless you're farming, working the land, familiar with that process, we don't often think of a, a sickle, but a sickle is meant to reap. And so we're, we're signaled by the fact of this sickle that there's some kind of reckoning that's about to occur. There's some sort of harvest that's at hand, and it's the harvest at the close of history, which again, I'll say to you, is bad news for some, great news for others. 
In verse 15, another angel comes, says to this one sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so this one like a son of man, this Jesus reaps the harvest of the earth. And there's two harvests in this text. And this is the first harvest. And this is a good harvest. This harvest is an ingathering. It's a bringing in of all of God's people from the earth. Why do I say that? Well, we look at other texts of the Bible to try to understand those that may be more challenging or unclear. And so when we look at different references to the harvest, it's oftentimes positive. You might remember when Jesus engaged with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And Jesus breaks all sorts of barriers and, and uh, things in the way to engage this woman and to lead her and draw her to saving faith in himself. But then after that conversation, Jesus debriefs with his disciples. In John 4, 35, he says to them, Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In the Gospel of Matthew 9, 37, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so Jesus is telling his followers, his disciples, and us that that the harvest is ready, that there are people all over the place that God is drawing to himself. People that he is bringing into his kingdom, they're everywhere. But we've got to get more workers out there. We, as it were, are his workers in this world. So the harvest is ready. All around us, all the time, God is, is, as it were, harvesting people to himself, harvesting men and women for himself, drawing them into relationship with him. And then at the close of history that we're sort of considering in this text, Jesus will then gather and reap and harvest all of his redeemed people into his presence that they might live with him in the new heavens and the new earth that he will establish. And this harvest is of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So friends, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Will will you be found in this harvest in the end? But there's a second harvest. First harvest is good. It's positive. A second harvest occurs, and this one's a harvest of grapes. Verses 17 through 19, we encounter two other angels there. And one of them is commanded in verse 18. It says this, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. And as we, again, as we look across Scripture, where do we see this same image? Where is this same illustration used? And almost everywhere, this gathering of grapes and this throwing of them into a wine press is almost always divine judgment. Divine judgment, divine punishment of the wicked. And so in the ancient world, grapes are, are gathered and they, were, they are thrown into this wine press and they are literally trampled by foot. Trampled by foot to get the juice and the wine. And so that's the image here. 
When we look at chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15, we see that almost the exact same language, that Jesus Christ himself is the one treading the grapes. It says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's not a meek and mild Jesus, is it? It's a savior. It's a one who is right and just to judge the earth. And so that's the second harvest, the harvest of the unrighteous, enemies of God, those who have the mark of the beast, those who have rejected Christ. In this image and in other places in Scripture, we have to consider and wrestle with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not comfortable. We might take issue with the wrath of God. We don't like the wrath of God, but, but as we understand God in his fullness, we, we see that his wrath is a necessary, natural outworking of his love, of his holiness, of his justice. When we try to describe wrath, there's a, a common metaphor used, and I think it's a, a good one. And it's, it's that wherever there is great love, by necessity, there has to be great wrath against anything that may come against the object of one's love. So what am I talking about? One of the ways that we see this is as we look at the love of a parent for a child. So I know many in the room are parents. I have two kids, and, and so, so as a dad, I, I, I love my kids. I'm committed to them. I want their flourishing and their well-being and their safety. And so if anything comes against them to, to harm them, to, to hurt them in any way, out of my love, I have to react in anger and wrath against that thing. It's just the outworking of a profound love. And the reality is that God fiercely loves us. He loves you. He loves his creation. And so anything that is going to come against that, destroy that, harm that, God reacts in wrath. See, as, 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 as a parent, as a dad, I, I, I can't be indifferent to anything that may harm or hurt my kids. And so, too, with God, he can't be indifferent to sin, or he wouldn't be good. So wrath, God's wrath. God's wrath is, we find it throughout the Bible. If we have a problem with wrath, we have a problem with the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have a problem with the apostles. We have a problem with Jesus, who speaks of it himself. John 3.36 we encounter a, a statement about wrath. And there we have John the Baptist. You might remember John the Baptist. His whole calling, his whole point was just to prepare people for Jesus. He says to them, look, that's the Lamb of God. Listen to him. So that's his whole deal. And in John three thirty-five, John the Baptist says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So wrath is real. 
But the good news, friends, this morning is that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. The gospel says that Jesus, in our place, took the wrath of God. Absorbed it into himself. All the punishment for sin. About one year ago, we preached on the seven last words of Jesus. Do you remember that sermon series as we prepared for Easter? And Pastor JP preached on, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus says as he hangs on the cross. And the whole point of that sermon is to say that, that Jesus was forsaken so that you don't have to be. That Jesus experienced the wrath of God so that you don't have to. And that was his gracious love toward us. And so, friends, we're confronted with what's to come. And friends, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not received this gift of forgiveness for you, today is your day. So there's two harvests here. Harvest of God's people. A a, a gathering in of his redeemed people. And then the harvest of the unrighteous. This, This text just confronts us with both the bad news. But as we understand the bad news, it makes the good news of God's grace for us even greater. So let's return to this, these redeemed ones, those who are victorious, those who are gathered in by Jesus as we look at chapter 15. 15, chapter 15, verse 1, introduces seven plagues of judgment. We're not going to look at those today, but they're introduced here in verse 1. These, these plagues are, are, are also known as the seven bowls of God's wrath. And many look at these bowls as, as final, as consummate judgment in the end. And they're not going to be poured out until chapter 16, but they're introduced. But then right after they're introduced... We have an interjection, which we see all over Revelation. So we're going to specifically look at verses 2 and 3 and 4. And John has another vision. And here it says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside. Better translation there is probably standing on the sea. Those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. If you've read that text before, or, or maybe it's even striking you right now this morning, there's all kinds of Exodus-like imagery right there. You might remember the story of the Exodus of God's people from Egypt in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And there we have We have Pharaoh and we have his armies who are chasing after God's people who have just been released after all the series of plagues and things that God sends on that nation. And so the people are now between the sea and the armies of Pharaoh. And so that's not a nice, fun place to be in. But they trust God. And what happens is God supernaturally parts the sea in front of them so that they can walk across on dry ground. 
And Pharaoh, you might remember, Pharaoh and his armies, they pursue into the sea, and then God releases the waters and swallows up the enemies of God's people. And after all that unfolds before the nation, Moses, standing on the shore in Exodus 15, sings a song of praise to God for their deliverance. So that's the first Exodus. Revelation, as many would say, describes a greater Exodus, a greater deliverance for us that's coming. It's a deliverance from the power of sin and death and the beast and the dragon that God will accomplish one day. So this is a a greater exodus envisioned here for us. But what is some of the specific imagery? John sees a sea of glass. We first read about a sea of glass in Revelation 4 where you might remember John has this vision of the throne of God. And, and at that throne is like a sea of glass like crystal. And there in the vision is the throne of God. And so in some sense, this is both the, the floor of heaven and the ceiling of the earth, this place where God's throne is. And so what we could be seeing here is that God's people, those who have been delivered and saved, are now with him at his throne. In his glorious presence, they've been gathered in, harvested in. But what else about the sea? This sea is a sea of glass glowing with fire. In the ancient world, in Revelation, the sea is often associated with evil and and, and chaos and demonic forces. You might remember last week, this this beast rises from the sea. This, This agent, this satanic force and kingdom and all that it represents rises from the sea. So chaos, demonic power. But then there's fire, fire in the sea, and fire oftentimes in Revelation is judgment. And so we have here a picture of the judgment of the beast, the judgment of Satan and all of those allied with him. And the people of God, the redeemed ones of God, stand beyond it and look on at God's just judgment. And they sing a song of deliverance. What is their song? Like Moses, as the people were delivered from Egypt, the redeemed people of God now sing too. And it's the song of the Lamb. They say, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So all that unfolds, God's God's judgment against wickedness and evil and the beast, and all those allied with him, is righteous and just, and true, and they celebrate their victory. So God's people standing in victory, and as we look ahead to the end of this age, as we try to understand what's to come, how God will bring things to a close, there's good news, and there's bad news to reckon with. 
Judgment to destruction awaits the unrighteous, those who have rejected Christ, enemies of God, those who are seduced by the beast, but then also the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for us, that we might be redeemed and stand with him in victory. So church, how then do we live? What, do we, what does this mean for us as people of faith? Two things as we close. Gratitude and vigilance. Gratitude and vigilance. We recognize as we, as we see the, what's at stake, as we see the consequences, as we see the reckoning that's coming, is we recognize that God has been so good to us. God has been so good to us to send his son who would absorb the wrath of God in our place. A God who is just committed to us, loves us, does not desire that we would be lost forever, but has intervened, has stepped in. God has been good. And so we worship him. We're full of gratitude. I like what a scholar named Leon Morris said. He said, when the logic of the situation demands that he, who's God, should take action against the sinner, and yet he takes action for him, in Jesus Christ he's referring to there, then and then alone can we speak of grace. But there's no room for grace if there's no suggestion of dire consequences merited by sin. And so God has been good. And this morning, he offers you this gift of forgiveness and life and redemption. And if you've not ever received that, turn from sin and receive the gift of God and Christ for you. Gratitude, but also vigilance. I don't know about you, but this, this book of Revelation that we have chosen to preach is just a kick in the pants, isn't it? It just, it just has to stir us up. And so some, I'm so glad we're preaching through this book, but that's how I'm experiencing it for sure. And so if God is holy and just and, and righteous, and if this reckoning that's going to happen is, is, is coming, we have to live with a healthy fear of God. And so do we take our own sin seriously? Do we confess sin? Do we seek God for healing? Do we look within our hearts every day to look for any impurity that may be there that God may work in us? Friends, if you've trusted Christ, we know and we are confident that we can stand before God in this reckoning which is coming. But nonetheless, we serve a God who is holy and we live up to the calling of Scripture to be holy, for I am holy, says God. So how do you remain vigilant? What practices are in your life to help you resist the seductions of this world, resist the effects of sin, to lean in to Jesus? Time in prayer, time in God's word, time with him. But then who is helping you stay vigilant? 
Who are your people? Who is your community? Who is your support system? Who are your brothers and sisters in faith who are going to walk with you and spur you on? If you don't have them, find them. If anything's that I've discovered to be true, it's that we don't just drift towards godliness. Oftentimes, it's the opposite. And so what will help us follow Jesus faithfully? So that's vigilance in one sense. Finally, vigilance in the sense of taking advantage of those opportunities that God gives us to share this gospel of grace that we're looking at. Vigilance to have eyes wide open in this world as we live for who is God drawing Who is God bringing to himself? And how may I help them on that journey? Every day, everywhere, we experience and encounter people under wrath. And so into that, we share this gospel of grace, knowing that God is preparing hearts for him and for his harvest. So may we have courage to live up to this calling. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this word. And God, would you empower us and encourage us to take this seriously and to trust you and to follow you and to respond to your invitation. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you took the wrath of God on the cross that we don't have to. And so, God, we worship you. Give us gratitude and joy in our salvation this day. In Jesus' name, amen.